Legal Faceoff on WGNRadio.com is brought to you by McCorkle Litigation Services, leaders in court reporting and legal technology. Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man, Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Faceoff on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. Hello and welcome in to the latest installment of the Legal Faceoff podcast on WGN Radio. I'm your moderator, Joe Brand. As always, we're joined by Rich Lenkoff of Downey and Lenkoff and Tina Martini of McDermott, Will and Emery. Let's start off with the latest indictment against former President Donald Trump. And we bring in Kevin McMonigle, former federal prosecutor and law professor at Case Western Reserve University in Ohio along with author of multiple publications. Professor, thank you very much for joining us today. Nice to be here. Professor, let's just jump right into the Georgia indictment. Why RICO? Why uh, is Fonnie Willis using uh, the state RICO statute in this way in this case? There's a lot of advantages. First, it allows her to present a big picture of things that went on all across the United States in front of the jury. It carries a five-year mandatory minimum. So if someone's convicted under this, the judge has no discretion. It's a five-year mandatory minimum, which is a tremendous lever for plea bargaining. When we get to that issue about who might cooperate, it's up to the prosecutor, not to the judge, about whether or not the uh, person pleads to the RICO count or something else. And that really is so the prosecutor can really control how much time the person not just is exposed to, but actually gets. Most of these people in this indictment, they're all first-time offenders, and you would think, well, what's the chance of them getting prison time? But under the RICO statute, the judge has no discretion. They get at least five years. So, Professor, what do you think is a realistic trial date for this Georgia case? I think early 2024. I think they've, uh, they've been talking about March. The idea that it should be in 2026, that Trump has suggested, is completely ridiculous. Uh, in this case, it could be ready to go in four or five months, I think. I mean, isn't that a little optimistic, though, given how many defendants there are and they'll all have individual motions? And I mean, that the motion practice alone could take months. You know, I can't even imagine selecting a jury with that many people. It seems overly optimistic. And perhaps to that point, was it a mistake for Fonnie Willis to charge so many people as opposed to, you know, special counsel Jack Smith on the federal side? who only charged Trump and focused, you know, focused like a laser on one person. Yeah. Well, uh, the fact that she brought everybody in under the RICO count means that the case is in front of just one judge. It doesn't mean they're all, they'll all be tried together. Defendants often make severance motions, and the judge can divide it up and not have all 18 people or 19 people tried at the same time. So... Uh, if if it was di- if, if it was uh, different judges, you'd have to. As they're in the other cases, uh, it's hard for them to figure out who's going to go first. Is with this case, you have one judge controls everything, and uh, they've talked about the documents being such a big deal. But there's uh, anybody who does civil discovery now knows there's electronic document systems, which uh, are you know someone like Trump could easily afford. So they can do the document review, I think, much more quickly than they're saying. 
And also, presumably, Professor, a lot of the work has been done by the January 6th committee already, right? I mean, a lot of the evidence gathering investigation is already behind us. Yeah. And the defense counsel will know what's coming. It's not like it's a surprise, especially in such a detailed indictment where all the evidence is laid out. That doesn't have to be done that way. But how can they say, geez, I, I, I don't know what's coming down the road when it's all been laid out in the uh, both the Smith indictment and the uh, Georgia indictment? So, Professor, which of Trump's 18 co-defendants or 30 unindicted co-conspirators do you think are going to flip first? That's a hard thing uh, to predict. Basically, what they're balancing is loyalty to Trump versus their own exposure during prison time, which is serious here, given the mandatory minimum. So part of it is going to depend on, you know, in a case like this, normally when people flip, the prosecutors want to start with the lower players and roll up the pyramid. So they're probably going to go with the people who have, you know, uh, lesser offenses and try and turn them against people like Giuliani and Trump, who are more at the top of the pyramid. Although it's it's an interesting article in New York Times recently about how Giuliani, although he's been very loyal to Trump, he's incredibly strapped in terms of money to pay for his legal defense. Uh, He's on the verge of bankruptcy, it looks like, and Trump won't pay any of his legal bills. So you just wonder how long is Giuliani going to stay loyal to Trump? It, he may stay loyal through the trial, but some of these people are going to flip, and it's going to depend on how good the deal is it's made. Um, the, the article uh, describes this pilgrimage that Giuliani made up to Mar-a-Lago asking for a handout uh, and you know, came away with no get, no no certainty from, uh, from the former president. But, Professor, you've been in those rooms, right? Talk to us about the psychology of how you flip these people. You mentioned loyalty. I mean, what is left to be loyal to? I mean— if Trump, I mean, listen, he is leading the Republican field by a lot. I think the polls leading into Wednesday's debate showed him at 56 to like 14 for DeSantis. So on the one hand, you can understand how a lot of these people may think if I just hold out and I'm loyal to Trump, if he's president again, I got a job. On the other hand, you would think that, man. And maybe doing that job in prison. <laughs> exactly. And I'm not. I, I'm about I mean, remote working. <laughs> Exactly. A lot of these people are in their 70s and the prospect of spending even a few years of your 70s in a federal penitentiary versus just telling the truth and flipping on Trump of all people seems like a no brainer. But what's the psychology of staying loyal to, you know, in this case, the top of the pyramid? Well, I think one of the things is uh, they're not just worried about Trump, but the Trump base. And you can see that among the Democratic uh, contenders. Only Chris Christie is really taking him on, despite you know, all these indictments. So that's another issue. You would think some of these state officials would not have much uh, loyalty to Trump. So how do you flip them? What, what's, I mean, what, if you were in that room, I mean, obviously you're threatening jail time and you're showing them the mountain of evidence. Um, and and- uh, Jesus, the five-year mandatory minimum. I'd say, all right, you go to trial. And if you lose, you get at least five years imprisonment which for any of these people is an enormous and frightening sentence. Uh, and then he said, well, if you do cooperate, we'll drop the RICO count. You can plead guilty to forgery or perjury or false statement, something else that doesn't carry a mandatory minimum. And then you're free to ask the judge, due to your age or anything else, to not send you to jail. And for first-time offenders, that's a re- realistic option. So basically, you're dangling a five-year uh, prison sentence in front of these folks. That is an enormous 
And you basically are saying, all right, who it's the prisoner's dilemma. If you know that from game theory, uh, if everybody hangs tight, maybe they can all win. But if you're going to flip, you want to be the first one in the door to get the best, best deal. So they're going to choose different people to offer this to and say, all right, who's, who's wants to get be first in the door and get the best deal. So professor, is there a case for removal to federal court here? Uh, there isn't. I think this is going to be rejected, just like the New York one was. There's a really interesting uh, article in the Atlantic recently by uh, Larry Tribe and Dennis Aftergut uh, about this, and they really lay out the case. So when Trump was calling about the election, that's about seeking his own reelection. That's not an official act. That's a private act that he wants to be reelected. And then also, he has absolutely no authority as president over Georgia elections, right? That's Georgia law. They're Georgia legislators, Georgia electors. And so it's not, it's hard to say that his trying to make the election fair was an official act on his part when he has no authority or responsibility for that for a good reason, right? It's, it's insulated from him, as you would expect. So I think this removal thing is just like, it's just a play, for, just like the 2026 trial date. I don't really think that the defense lawyers seriously think any of those things are in the realm of possibility. They're just sort of throwing those out as bargaining chips to say, okay, well, but I don't think these motions, those have much of a chance. Professor, you mentioned Lawrence Tribe. Uh, There's also an article, a new article by him and former uh, Judge Michael Ludwig. Yeah. Very critical of the president, um, of course, um, who make a case that the 14th Amendment's disqualification clause actually disqualifies Trump from being president again, because, uh, you know, even though he wasn't char- he hasn't been charged with an act of sedition. Explain that for me, if you can. Well, the uh, the uh, constitutional clause does not depend or require him to be convicted of anything. It's just if he uh, engages in rebellion or sedition, I forget what the exact language is, but if he they prove he engaged in that, he's disqualified. That doesn't have to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's independent of any criminal convictions. So that I think their uh, analysis is very persuasive. So, Professor, do you think Willis, Bragg and Smith will collaborate on their prosecutions? I would be stunned if they don't. I mean, I often had cases, an easy example would be a bank robbery. A bank robbery is a state and federal offense. It's usually the local police that arrests the guy. Uh, and then the FBI takes him over. And then we would have to decide, are we going to take the guy federally or state? And I would talk to the state prosecutors. I'd talk to the local police. And we would interact with who's got the stronger case, what's the better venue, you know. So I'd be shocked if their staffs weren't already uh, interacting and talking to one another, which and, and it seemed to me very appropriately. Professor Lasso. Almost the malpractice not to, to connect with the state prosecutor. They each have a mount of evidence that one might have something that the other doesn't. You can imagine, uh, you know, a, a book written years down the road saying, oh, what a travesty that something. They didn't talk to each other. I can't believe they aren't talking to each other Professor at some Lasso. level. Maybe not Smith and uh, Funny Willis, but their staffs. Sorry, last question here on Legal Face. Yeah. You've got that beautiful Fender behind you. We yeah. know you've been playing that thing for years. If you had to play one song 
that would summarize what's going on now in the Trump legal world? What would what would that song be, Professor? Oh God, I mean, it would be a blues for sure, <laughs> in a minor key. <laughs> uh, well, next time you come on, you'll have to play that for us. Yeah, help the poor. You know that song by BB King, mm-hmm. great minor blues rumba. You That's could do the, you could change the lyrics to uh, have it be uh, Trump would be really easy. It's a great song. Once again, that is professor and musician Kevin McMonagle of Case Western Reserve University in Ohio. Professor, thank you very much for the insight. All right. Nice to see you. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Downey and Lenkoff, a firm with offices in Illinois, Indiana and Wisconsin. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like McDonald's, Target, Macy's, Wendy's and the Chicago Bears for his zealous advocacy and outstanding litigation results. Rich's many accolades include being named as an Illinois super lawyer from 2015 to present and leading lawyer from 2012 to present. These are designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, serving on the Legal Prep Charter Academy Advisory Board and the Northern Illinois University College of Law Board of Visitors. Rich is also a producer with credits including 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and Mike Ditka. Renegades, a Caesars Palace production starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon, Rock of Ages, and Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel in Concert. In addition to hosting WGN's Legal Faceoff since 2014, Rich serves as a legal analyst for a variety of media outlets. Downey & Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Downey and & Lenkoff, please visit dl-firm.com. Continuing on the Legal Faceoff podcast, former President Donald Trump has been reinstated on multiple social media platforms. For that, we bring in Dr. Pete Simi, professor at Chapman University and co-author of an award-winning book manuscript, The American Swastika, along with Jacob Glick of Georgetown Law, his policy counsel at the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection, also served as investigative counsel select committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. Thank you both for being here today. Great to be Thanks with you. Thanks for having us. Jacob, your work on the select committee revealed that the the uh, relevance and the role that social media platforms played in the failed attempt to overturn the election and the insurrection of the Capitol. Talk to us about some of the dangers now with Trump being back uh, on these platforms and the lack of real um, um, you know, filters on his ability to communicate to his supporters. Sure. So I think what we saw in the select committee's investigation is that President Trump, as we got closer to January 6th and other avenues of victory were cut off to him, he lashed out on social media, particularly uh, on December 19th, he sent out a tweet telling all his supporters to come to the Capitol, be there, we'll be wild. And after that, we saw multiple depositions with Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, others, that that particular tweet was a call to action. They saw as a violent call to arms to coordinate with each other, uh, to go deeper into conspiracy theories and funnel all of their energy onto January 6th. And so obviously the fear is that President Trump will use his platforms again uh, to call supporters to another rallying point uh, related to his indictments, related to something else. So far that hasn't happened, uh, but as we've seen uh, already, his supporters in the furthest corners of the internet are taking his um, general uh, agony online uh, as sort of uh, permission and, and encouragement to take action against, uh, or at least make threats against uh, grand jurors and others. Professor, some of the um, things that Trump has said in the wake of these indictments 
can't even be called the dog whistle. I think that would, you know, uh, be an insult to dog whistles, right? When he's calling uh, these people riggers, he's calling uh, Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg an animal. Uh, he called Fonnie Willis um, a racist. He accused her uh, of having an affair with one of the members of the gang that she's prosecuting under RICO. What's your take on all of these calls that Trump is uh, is throwing out there uh, for mass consumption? Well, I think it's part of a um, longstanding repertoire that he's developed that fits into a repertoire of leadership uh, on the far right, far right extremist leaders that use this kind of dehumanizing language, uh, this kind of rhetoric that really, um, as you said, it, it's it's not very, very subtle. It's not very coded. Um, it It is a uh, in many respects, it, it, it certainly, if not explicitly, is an implicit call to action, although, for instance, with Alvin Bragg, the, the D.A., um, in, in New York, you, you saw the pictures that were were actually uh, very explicitly essentially calling for violence. Um, so, you know, this is something that uh, Trump did while he was president. It's something he did while he was com- campaigning to be president. And it's something that uh, goes way back in his history, going all the way back to his response to the um, to the individuals that were were arrested and ultimately convicted wrongfully for the sexual assault of the uh, jogger in Central Park. So long, long history of Trump doing this, but also part of a larger kind of cultural uh, repertoire that we see on the far right. We've seen death threats right against New York uh, um, Attorney General Letitia James, who is presenting the civil suit against Trump. We've seen death threats against the judge who is overseeing the January 6th indictment case brought by special counsel Jack Smith. Um, Professor, how, how much uh, of a stretch is it to say that a lot of what Trump is saying can lead to actual violence against these and other individuals who is being called out by the former president? Well, you know, there's there's the legal issue here in terms of the question that you ask. And then there's a, I suppose you might say, a moral or ethical or a cultural question, which is, we know words and action have a relationship to each other. Uh, sometimes words will influence behavior, but they won't rise to a, a legal level in terms of um, the person being uh, held accountable for those words. Uh, so in, in this case, you know, it's hard to say without looking very, very carefully, specifically at, at uh, certain instances where words are expressed and communicated and then you have actions to, to be able to see whether there is enough there to, to hold someone legally accountable, either criminally or civilly. Uh, but but broadly speaking, I think we shouldn't just be looking at that narrow lens. We should be looking at more from a ethical, moral and a cultural standpoint. And when leaders or those who um, would like to be leaders are engaged in this kind of reckless uh, language and rhetoric, uh, they, they should be held accountable in other ways, if not legally. What's your take on that? What's your take on, you know, what the platform should be doing uh as a result of, of some of the communications we're seeing coming out of uh, Mar-a-Lago and, and Bedminster lately. So I, I completely agree with what uh, Dr. Simi uh, is saying. And we saw in the select committee's investigation, multiple witnesses tell us 
you know, almost word for word, the same exact violent misinformation that the president was spewing uh, before the election. They cited the president's words, the president's directives uh, as the reason why they came to the Capitol on January 6th. Uh, and you've seen him do this flirtation uh, with extremists, both organized and, un and organize, unorganized, uh, even before the insurrection. So look at the example of Governor Whitmer uh, in Michigan when President Trump was really preoccupied with rallying uh, his supporters against COVID-19 restrictions. Uh, then you have all of a sudden uh, an, an assassination plot against Governor Whitmer and President Trump essentially rhetorically forgives those individuals in a campaign rally uh, in October of 2020. And so whether or not there can be legal liability for those specific invectives uh, is, as as Dr. Simi said, a, a really complicated and difficult question. But the investigation that we conducted, I think, leaves without a doubt uh, the the dangerous reality that the president's words lead people to action. Uh, and I think that social media companies need to be more honest about the risk that that dynamic uh, poses and continues to pose. A lot of platforms, uh, I think, have wanted to sweep January 6th under the rug in terms of President Trump's uh, involvement in the uh, fomenting of violence. Uh, and that places like Twitter and Facebook need to be proactive in taking down content by the president. Uh, they can't wait like they did last time until there are already uh, you know, people scaling the walls of our Capitol uh, or, or attacking a courthouse. Uh, and I don't know that there is uh, personnel present at Twitter, or I suppose it's X, uh, capable of taking that kind of action right now. Speaking of the dangers that some of this technology poses, you know, we can't discuss that topic without discussing AI, right? There's just been mm -hmm. a uh, a fake ad uh, involving Trump and the governor of Iowa, in which you know a totally fraudulent, I mean, a fake, you know, an AI-generated voice is on the commercial purporting to be Trump. So, you know, even since you did your fine work on the January 6th committee, Jacob, there's additional technology that can incite mass violence dealing with AI. And I think that that all falls into the same general bucket of concern. AI is a revolutionarily scary development since the committee wrapped up. Um, but what we need to think about is sort of this broader dynamic of an anti-democratic threat within the United States. If you took uh, one of these major social media corporations and asked them to evaluate this pattern of events in another country, uh, I think they'd have a very different response than when you're asking them about President Trump, uh, former President Trump, and what he's saying online now, whether that's related to AI or related to uh, coded incitement to violence, uh, we need to be really sober sober in our assessment of the threat that faces the United States. And uh, social media companies need to be willing to take actions they would take if they saw violence uh, being fomented in other places around the world. That's a great point. Um, Dr. Simi, last word goes to you on this topic. You know, the threat environment seems to be at an all-time high now. Imagine what it will be like if... Uh, Trump gets actually convicted by any jury in one of the four indictments he's facing. I mean, what do you predict will be the I mean, in many ways that can make January 6th look like, you know, a parade, unfortunately. Yes, I um, I share that fear. Um, justice needs to proceed. It cannot be deterred by the potential threat that may arise uh, depending on certain outcomes. But we should be very clear eyed, very sober in understanding where we stand now and where we're moving over the next uh, year or so in terms of the threat landscape. And it's at, in my view, 
having monitored the threat landscape since 1996, we're, we're at a place we've we've never been over those more than 25 years. Um, so we are in a very dangerous situation. I think it's going to get even more dangerous. Jacob Glick, Dr. Pete Seavey, thank you so much for joining us on Legal Faceoff. Continuing on the Legal Faceoff podcast, AI seems to be on everyone's minds these days, and that includes the legal field. Let's bring in Mark C. Palmer, who, when he isn't training for his next marathons, spending time with his wife and kids or traveling the world, is chief counsel at Illinois Supreme Court Commission on Professionalism. Mark, thank you very much for joining us. Happy to be here. Thank you. So, Mark, ChatGPT has been all the rage, particularly over the past year, and especially as the technology continues to rapidly advance. How does ChatGPT do what it does, and why do you think it's important for the legal profession? Well, to try to keep it simple for all of us out there, this is a different kind of tool than we're used to because it can create new outputs, unlike just your typical Google search that we've done for the past 20 years, right? And this can be used as a new tool to really not just create content, but also kind of be a partner as a lawyer in your law firm. For instance, summarizing content is one of the great examples I've seen already used by tons of lawyers. Um, Drafting documents. And we'll talk a little bit about some of the uh, caveats there, of course. Um, But it. It's a fantastic starting point, and it does all this because it's it's thinking differently, and the technology behind the architecture creates outputs based on relationships with other information. And but we're talking vast quantities of information, and that's where it can become uh, more accurate the more information you put in. And that's where we're seeing this really fast improvement of a tool that can be used for all industries, including lawyers. Uh, an important part, Professor, of using Chat GPT is making sure users properly develop the prompts needed to elicit information. What does that mean exactly? Yeah, the prompts is another way of saying what you put in. So we've been doing Google Google searching for years. Um, we've also been trained on legal research inputs, um, the classic Boolean search, uh, things like that. This is a whole new way to find the information, though, and you need to think of it as having a conversation. It's really turning the tables on how we found information and answers than in the past. For example, uh, for this show, I could type in, give it a situation where you're going to be interviewed for a podcast by an audience of mostly lawyers and other public members discussing generative AI. And I could plug in some questions and it could give me sample answers and I could follow up on those conversations. And that's the other key point. It's a continual conversation, very different than the traditional online search of a search engine, right? So you can continue to follow up on answers, ask it for more information, simplify or fine tune your answers as well. So that can be very valuable, but it takes some understanding and practice to change how you think and how you ask those questions. So Mark, while ChatGPT is clearly able to be a very helpful tool, especially when you know how to use it, as we've seen, particularly over the last several months, it can also lead to serious errors and potential ethical issues. Many of us heard about the New York attorneys who were sanctioned earlier this summer for including fictitious case citations that were generated by ChatGPT for a legal brief that they went to court with. 
What are some of the legal issues and ethical issues that users of ChatGPT in the legal space in particular need to be aware of? Yeah, Tia, this is very important. And of course, all lawyers, you've got to put your ethical responsibilities, your must-dos at square one. This is where you must start. Um, And I think we can't be blaming the tool on the process here. Those lawyers that got in trouble, uh, they didn't fact check what they were putting in their briefs in that instance, just like you got to back up your data and in our case, shepherdize cases, for example, and so forth. You need to do the same of any type of outputs that's coming towards you, whether it be from a technology novel tool like uh, generative AI or more traditional search engines or legal research tools and so on. So what do you need to know? First of all, confidentiality. Um, You must preserve that of your client information. So you should not go into these tools and put carte blanche what your legal issues are about your clients. You must keep that close to your chest, just as you wouldn't do uh, posting it on a listserv of of getting advice from a fellow lawyer, for example. Um, But there's more developed tools that are more closed environments. And you're going to see more and more of that almost weekly. We're seeing pushed out, uh, especially big law firms. And I think other vendors will follow where it's more of a closed environment to protect that information, just like you have a closed environment, maybe when you go in to your legal search uh, vendor, such as Westlaw or Lexus and the like. Um, That's one. Another output issue is the source verification. The way this AI works is it's pulling data that already exists on the internet in some source out there. So sometimes it's a patchwork quilt of answers from other sources that may be copyrighted or infringed upon. So you have to be very careful and not just copy and paste the output. That's why I like to say it's a great starting point to brainstorm or outline an issue or summarize an issue, but to copy and paste it and use it directly as the product itself that's asking for danger. And the last point I want to make on ethical issues is, as it is for all ethical issues, as it should be, is supervising and training. Okay. This is not just the other lawyers in your office, but all staff and even third-party vendors. You must, as always, create reasonable efforts to ensure that they are conducting themselves in the same professional obligations we must do as lawyers. So what's that mean? Create internal policies, procedures. Don't sit on your hands with these novel issues. Get out there, address them proactively, and start talking about it in your office. And even better yet, start training about it in your office. Professor, you know, Chat GPTI or Chat, I'm sorry, Chat GPT is a great resource uh, and one that is impossible to ignore. But, you know, Old dinosaurs like me think that we still bring and attorneys still bring human beings still bring some value to the process here. You know, we we provide things that AI can't things like judgment, um, context, critical thinking, legal expertise, uh, empathy. Those are all things that you can't get from a chat GPT. So how important are those uh, functions to these problem solving and, and, and will they continue or are those also skills that one day will be replaced by AI? That's a great question, Rich. And I don't see it as a, as a black or white issue, a one or the other issue. Um, and I've heard it said that, uh, chat GPT and other types of generative AI will not replace lawyers. In fact, it'll make us look better. It'll make us look like superheroes. I've even heard said, which is great. Um, 
it all comes back to our rule number 1.1 right there from the beginning competency. We as lawyers have an obligation out of the gate. And in Illinois and 39 other jurisdictions, we actually have that technology uh, comment in comment eight that we must stay abreast of changes, including the risks and benefits of technology, relevant technology. Well, this is certainly relevant. So you need to go out there and at least try it out, explore it, um, you know, run it, for example, if you uh, do you know, some type of work involving issuing discovery on a routine basis, you have your templates of interrogatories and the like, right? Go ahead and run those through ChatGPT and see if they give you some new ideas. Be more creative. Um, it can almost work as a co-counsel with you, and it can only enhance your delivery of legal services if you're done right. So don't be afraid of it. Embrace the abilities to it, but at the same time, recognize those risks and benefits. I have one last question for you. So there are some firms that I'm aware of, particularly speaking about this in the private um, private practice context, that have made the decision, I think, because of the potential liability to not allow their attorneys to use chat GPT at all. What would you like to say to those firms that at least at this point have made that decision? Yeah, Tina, and that's very similar. Also, we've seen it with judges, right? That there's been some standing orders issued across the country on disclosure or outright outright banning of it. Um, the same struggle uh, conversations being had at law schools across the country. How do we deal with this? Do we ban it or do we embrace it for what it is and teach about it and learn about it? And I think the latter is the way to go here. Uh, I have problems with a direct ban of the situation, but I can understand the protection of the liability or the malpractice and the and, and beyond that, um, that these firms and organizations are trying to curtail. But instead, you need to do exactly what each lawyer should look at. Look at the risks and benefits involved and see how it can uh, start to change how you think and practice because it's not going to go away. And the long-term ways this is going to change all industries and very much including the legal industry is here to stay. So start today and at least try it out. Again, that's Chief Counsel at Illinois Supreme Court Commission on Professionalism, Mark C. Palmer. Find out more at two, that's the number two, civility.org. Mark, thank you very much for the insight. Thanks so much. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com.
Welcome back to the Legal Faceoff podcast. We go inside out for another of one of the latest articles of Chicago Lawyer Magazine. We bring in our more than a friend of the podcast, David Sussler. He and Tina Martini have recently discussed mental health in the legal profession. We bring in David Sussler, Associate General Counsel of National Material LP. Suss, great to see you once again. Good to see you. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, uh, Article 102, right? Uh, Column 102. Congratulations so. on passing the century. Uh, from your perspective, guys, Tina and, and David, where do we stand currently with mental health and legal profession? We know coming off COVID, you know, there's been a lot of changes. Uh, a lot of firms, the trend seems to be that a lot of firms are bringing people back to the office, uh, either more than part-time or full-time. That might be adding to some of the issues that are going on. But what's your individual sense from the inside counsel perspective? And then, Tina, from outside on mental health currently in the legal profession. Dave, why don't we start with you? Well, it, you know, it, it, it remains somewhat concerning and somewhat challenging. There's still a fairly high rate of uh, mental health concerns in the profession. Things like uh, high rates of, of alcohol and drug abuse, very high rates of depression, burnout. Um, so it's concerning. There's a lot more resources available, but there's still a lot of problems out there in our profession. I'd say, um, Rich, that from a private practice perspective, I guess the good news is that there's a lot more awareness around it. I think that COVID forced everybody to sort of take a step back and see how they were living their lives. A lot of people were heading to burnout in serious stages of burnout with the travel and just going a million miles a minute. But I also think that the COVID situation itself created a lot of difficulty for people. The lines of were really blurring between work and home, especially being at home for a sustained period of time. And so I think the silver lining here is that there's more awareness around it. There's more resources around it. But I also think that we're seeing some really um, critically um, dire cases of burnout and mental health issues unlike we've ever seen before. Tina, your article talks about self-awareness, uh, listening to your inner voice as tools that you should be using. Uh, talk to us about that and what other things that uh, you think can promote one's mental health in our profession. Well, I think the self-awareness part is a really important one, Rich. I think that sometimes we're getting all types of signs. Sometimes they're really subtle. Sometimes they're very overt that however we're living our life, um, particularly with regard to our mental health, um, that there are issues. And so I think it's critically important. We are in the best position to know what our state of wellness or unwellness is. And as I mentioned in the column, our bodies change over time, over time, our mind changes over time. And if you find that more often than not, that you're really unhappy and feeling like you're barely getting by and barely coping, there's probably there's indication there that you may need some level of assistance. And I think to rely on those around you to tell you you need help, it sometimes is a really tough situation because sometimes we're really good at faking it until we make it, or at least that's the philosophy a lot of us use. And so we oftentimes end up hiding it from those around us. And so I think we are our own best tool and best way to figure out whether there's something wrong. So, so a lot of corporations offer uh, 
you know, in addition to your traditional benefits, they offer uh, employee assistance programs. They offer therapy. It's easier than ever now to avail yourself of such resources because of the prevalence of online therapy, for example. Um, do you see this trend continuing in the corporate world? And and what other things are you seeing uh, from the Insight Council perspective to address this issue? Yeah, uh, there has been a, uh, I think, a, a pretty pretty good trend upwards in the availability of such uh, services, and I certainly would see them continuing. <clears throat> Excuse me. As I mentioned in the article, I, I, I'd like to see the stigma of people uh, availing themselves of such resources continue to to go away. There shouldn't be a stigma about it um, uh, because you know we we can't we can't all do it alone. You know, as Tina mentioned, with you know with COVID exacerbated it in a lot of ways. I think especially lawyers. We have the types of jobs that that we can do it from home, and a lot of companies kept their people at home really until recently, and some and some even still. I went back. You know, one example is I went back to the office full time in August of 2020, and a year or two later, when companies started opening up, I realized, wow, when I came back, it it, it was kind of scary at first, but I had dealt with that over a year earlier. And it seemed so much easier, and I, I I felt for a lot of a lot of people I knew had a real hard time, and still have a hard time reincorporating into into their former world, back out into the public, and that I think creates a lot of anxiety. Um, and so people need to avail themselves of it, and I think companies are trying to do a good job of balancing resources to help people deal with issues that have grown out of that, and just the stresses of our profession generally. Is mental health more of a challenge in our profession, uh, Sussler and, and Tina, given the challenges that we face on a daily basis, given that, you know, that it seems like not a day goes by when you're not literally just putting out fires right on behalf of clients. And that doesn't lend itself to uh, the best mental health every day when you wake up and you think you're going to accomplish a lot of your you know tasks and instead you're just literally dealing with a bunch of crises crises that lends itself to some stress and trauma is that just part of the job part of the gig when you get into being a lawyer um and do you think younger people are having a more difficult time balancing the needs of their clients uh and 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 mental health i'm happy to jump in and start so i i, I do think just the nature of what we do rich makes it a little bit more challenging to have like, you know, to be happier, especially if you're in a part of the profession where you're in litigation and it's just an unhappy set of circumstances. The, the practice area that immediately comes to mind is like family law, for example. I don't think I would ever be able to have the me- the internal metal to do that because it's just a lot of happiness. Um, and so I think that the substance of what we do, and it's also we're hypercritical. I mean, we as lawyers are looking for holes, looking for ways to get a leg up, especially if you do litigation. And so you're talking sometimes about unhappy things. And then it's easy, as I mentioned before, just in a normal state of things to get worn out, worn down. And COVID exacerbated that. And I do think that 
all of these things sort of come together to make it more challenging to have a sustained period where, you know, you're happy and where you don't end up through exhaustion or maybe even illness ending up with your with your mental health compromised. And I do think it's tougher for the younger generation, especially those that may have graduated law school during COVID because They have not had a normal experience like we knew it pre-COVID with respect to training um, and mentoring experiences and things like that. Yeah, I don't think that the the studies do not show that lawyers have significantly higher rates of mental illness uh, or, or, or addiction or substance abuse than other professions. But we certainly have very high rates. I keep going, but I'll stop. Last question here on uh, legal face-off. You know that I like to uh, lessen the trauma to my own mental health, which is considerable, as we all know, uh, with uh, traveling and seeing Bruce Springsteen. And when I was working for a while, unfortunately, I was emotionally distraught last week when I traveled to Philadelphia uh, to see the boss, and uh, he did not appear through some health issues of his own, which are currently unknown. So. David, any suggestions, Sessler, on how to replace the boss with other mental health therapy techniques? I know you also like to listen and see the boss because we saw each other as we saw Tina. Well, there's no replacement. Last week, but any advice? Um, The replacement for the live show would be to maybe listen to a recording of a live show. Um, uh, uh, Or go see see another another artist. for me, probably the closest second in music that I listen to when I need to be uplifted uh, is uh, Stevie Wonder. You could also, but there's no. You could also go to Sirius XM, and uh, there are often live shows of pre-recorded renditions of Bruce Springsteen. I listen to him many of the time in my car. David Sussler, thank you very much for the time. Thank you for having me. Take care, everyone. It's time for the Legal Grab Bag here on the Legal Faceoff podcast. We welcome in two returning guests, and we start with Joe Esses, Associate Attorney at Gordon Law Group. Joe, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Excited to be back. Absolutely. Along with Brian K. Fritz, the Restaurant and Retail Litigation Group and partner of KPM Law, along with proud board member of the Surma podcast. Brian, how's it going? Great. I'm surprised you all had me back. Well, we uh, we love returning guests and Rich, we'll just get right into it. Reportedly, some law enforcement expecting former President Donald Trump to surrender at the Atlanta jail this upcoming week. Yeah, the end of the week, I think Friday. I mean, it should be a real um, legal freak show here at the, at the county jail when all of the all of these people, you know, I, I'm hoping they all come on like a, a Trump clown car, car and they all show up together and they all pop. Up. Oh, there's John Eastman. There's. Uh, there's Giuliani. They all come together and presumably they all have lawyers. Um, I mean, it'll be the most one of the most covered appearances of all time. Uh, you know, Trump presumably is not going to get uh, mugshotted is what we hear. You know, it, it sort of questions why you have a mugshot in the first place. Right. I mean, you do that because you don't want the person to flee. You want if they do flee, you want them to be recognized. There's no one more recognizable on the planet Earth than Trump. But, you know, we had mugshots of other famous people. So I see you got a mugshot. Um, 
news today is that John Eastman, one of the uh, indicted alleged co-conspirators, has put up a $100,000 bond. The question, Tina, that we covered with one of our earlier guests is, who's going to flip? I mean, I think that's one of the most fascinating things. We know that Giuliani is broke, right? He went hat in hand to Mar-a-Lago, asked for money. Trump turned him away. Uh, he's sitting on a six, I think I saw a six million dollar uh, uh, apartment in New York. So he's got some money. He's doing those. He's doing this, you know, podcast that he's ranting about how unfair this indictment is. But I don't know. People, if there's odds, I'm sure he's one of the first to flip first on on uh, on Trump, especially because he's one of the ones facing the most liability. I agree, Rich. I think that at least in my mind, he's definitely towards the top of the list, if not the top of the list in terms of people who will flip. I think when you look at the circumstances, um, the running out of money, um, I think maybe part of his thought process also is what kind of legacy is he going to leave? Right. I mean, he was New York's hero during 9-11 and you know, talk about a completely different story being told now about him. So I actually think he may be one of the most likely people to flip at this point. Brian, you know, it's all happened very fast. I mean, it seems like only, you know, a couple of weeks ago, the federal indictment of Trump came down, which was, you know, unprecedented in our nation's history. Now we've got this Georgia indictment, which is very sweeping, follows the, you know, a lot of the allegations are are under the state RICO Act, which is traditionally used to confront and prosecute mobsters, but sort of taking a pause here. I mean, did you ever think we'd be in this place where a couple of days before the first Republican debate, you have the front runner um, with like 52 percent of the Republican vote in the primary facing four separate indictments? I mean, you think about what we've seen over the past six years and just the steady just decline of what an expectation should be is just grows every every single day and you know in my mind all i can think about is if he's going in there and i just want to see him in an orange jumpsuit right <laughs> you know see the orange jumpsuit the orange face the orange hair he's gonna look oh, that it was orange i guess is the question right <laughs> aren't they always <laughs> isn't that the whole orange is the new black i think it's a skin suit if it's trump well that's <laughs> what i was thinking he's he's gonna look like one of those like orange peanut marshmallow things you get out in, in halloween like instead of selling nfts he could sell yeah, Halloween candies. <laughs> no, let's make the case that for Trump, where we often get criticized as being too one-sided, too liberal on the show. Just a couple of days, just yesterday, we got an email from one of our vast array of fans and audience members and listeners to say that we got to, you know, take up the case against under Biden. And, you know, we will at some point for sure. Um, but is there a case to be made that this is in fact uh, a weaponization of the judicial system and that this is all, you know, unfounded. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a tough one, especially that they're alleging he's the head of the entire criminal enterprise. But if I'm if I'm Trump's attorney, I'm pointing as many fingers as I can at the rest of the gang who's going to be in that clown car with them on their way to the jail. And he was just advised to go about it this way. He didn't want to, uh, but he was forced to by his advisor. That's that's what I would try and allege. But not looking likely that he's going to get out of this one. I mean, speaking of Trump's lawyers, I mean, we all you're now in private practice, Joe. We all, you know, bill for our time and we know how valuable uh, and important it is to recover, not just bill, but recover our fees. His attorneys, as our earlier guest mentioned, they're not going to get paid. I mean, do you think it's worth it for them just for the notoriety 
and publicity that representing Trump brings to know that you're going to spend, I don't know, what, the next year and a half, two years working for a client that's not going to pay you, period. I mean, yeah, crazy. The crazy, the amount of billables that they'll have. I think Trump just set up a legal defense fund called the Patriot Legal Defense Incorporated to help pay for some of these expenses. But I don't know. Well, we'll see. I don't know if these attorneys will get paid, but a lot going on. Because we know the billable hour doesn't mean a lot to you because of your elevated status in the Virginia legal community. But would you allow one of your attorneys to come to you and say, hey, boss, I got, you know, this fairly prominent guy I want to represent. It's going to bring a lot of notoriety to the firm. But oh, by the way, we're going to get paid maybe 10 cents of the dollar, if that. I don't see that flying very well in our firm. (laughs) (laughs) We don't get paid that much. Tina, how's that going to go over at the the old firm? Not going to go over very well, Rich. Not at all. Moving on to Hawaii's primary energy provider facing at least three lawsuits after the deadly wildfire in the tropical state. I mean, the allegation of these lawsuits, and we'll see we'll see many, many more, is that the power lines in Maui were already down and that the electric company had notice of it. And despite that, they didn't de-electrify the power. Right. And, and, and the allegation is that had they done that, and I don't know the technicalities of it, but it seems fairly obvious or fairly straightforward if you follow the allegation, which is that if there wasn't power, which a lot of people are pointed to as the source of these fires, then the fires wouldn't have started. So, you know, obviously, you know, this is a tragedy. Um, and the other obvious thing is whenever there is such a calamity, especially natural disasters, you know, the, the, the natural and um, unmistakable corollary is that there will be lawsuits. So we'll see how that discovery goes. So far, the electric company has not admitted liability, of course. Um, we also saw, you know, the person in charge of uh, sounding the sirens resign for health reasons the day after he admitted that he did. Not only did he not sound the sirens, but he would not do so if he was uh, allowed to do so again, because he thought those were reserved for for uh, hike, uh, hurricanes and typhoons. So, again, litigation coming out of this. Um, is is inevitable and you know you feel obviously for the victims of it and you know in some cases lawsuits can be a good thing as much as a, as a defense lawyer i hate to say that but sometimes they lead to changes that are uh, positive for the industry yeah i agree rich and i think we just need to be mindful of the fact that understandably because of the horrific tragedy we're talking about here there's a tendency for people to want to have someone pay for it right to look for somebody to blame someone needs to pay. And I think it's just really important just sort of knowing how these things tend to go. They're very fact specific and needing to see what kinds of protocols there were in place for this type of an emergency. And were there systems in place where there were redundant systems to try to make sure that when situations like this present themselves, that people are doing what they need to do, what was the condition of the lines, all of that stuff, because there are so many things that go into this analysis, and I think it's just really important to do the fact gathering that's necessary to figure it all out. Yeah, I mean, Brian, you know, you represent, I represent a lot of high-profile companies who are often sued, and frequently the decision uh, is not, the decision on how to respond and how uh, ultimately to deal with such litigation is not only based on liability, but based on, you know, how much it's going to cost to defend and also the risk to one's reputation. Um, how do you think those factors will play into Hawaii Electric's decision on how to respond to these lawsuits? Well, this is their brand. I mean, that's kind of the thing that they're that's all they really probably do. And, you know, they're a 
probably I'm, and I'm assuming like for like most places there are court sanctioned monopoly. And when you're looking at it there and plus, um, and I have to actually represent the electrical companies in Virginia. So what I can tell you is what I do know is that power companies have a heightened duty of care because they're providing what's called a dangerous instrumentality. So they, they don't just have the normal standard of care of negligence that any other company would have. They have to go a little bit better, but, um, what I will say, because I've done a lot of these types of fire cases, it's so easy to jump to conclusions as to what caused it. And, and Tina's right. You got to do the fact finding. We don't I'd, I'd like to see the documents or the evidence that says this is what caused that initial fire, because once it starts and the winds go, you know, there's nothing anyone can do. And, and it could be anything from a, a car crash. It could be a tree coming up rooted and breaking a gas line. There are any number of things that can cause a spark or something to begin the initial fire. And I haven't seen anything that really tells me, hey, the company, the power company's failure to turn off the power is what caused it. Certainly it might have, but you don't get a lawsuit victory of it could have been this. They need to show it did. And I would just I don't know how they can know that at this point in time. By the way, the admission of the official that we talked about you know, plays into the defense that, listen, there is so much human error involved in a tragedy like this that who can pinpoint the exact reasons why. It should be noted that in similar lawsuits in California back in 2018, resulting from fires there, I mean, the company has paid, that company, I think it was Pacific Gas and Electric, paid billions and billions of dollars in settlement. So uh, we haven't heard the rest of this uh, this story, Joe. Yes. Like you guys are saying, so many factors go into liability here. It's a natural disaster. Like, was the government's response all, um, effective? Did that fall within the standard of care? And it's, it's such a beautiful place. I was there a couple of months ago, and it's incredible. It's it's so sad to see like what it's turned into, and like how me- so many people have like lost their homes. And it's understood how they want to make somebody feel responsible for this and get some compensation for it. Tina, we move to the latest Hollywood drama, the football movie The Blind Side, reportedly left the former NFL star blindsided based on the recent allegations. Yeah, Joe. So last week, former NFL star uh, Michael Ower, who is the subject of The Blind Side, filed suit alleging that Leanne and Sean Tui, who are the couple that took him in as a teenager and were also starred in the movie, misled him into believing that they adopted him. He said that they instead placed him in a conservatorship and that the whole purpose of that was to enrich themselves at his expense. Listeners will remember that Orr was a ward of the state of Tennessee and by the age of 11 and he was homeless as a child. He claims that the summer before his senior year, after he became a legal adult in July of 2004, that the two he's offered him a place to live with their family and said that he was going to be adopted by the family. He claims that he only just learned this past February that the documents that the Tuies had asked him to sign were actually conservatorship papers. He said he thought that they were part of the adoption process and he had no idea that the conservatorship would actually strip away his legal rights. He claims that he had no idea that the ultimate um, the ultimate scenario here with the conservatorship would mean that they would have ultimate control over all of his contracts. 
He's seeking termination of the conservatorship, which apparently has not yet terminated. And he's accusing the Tuies of a breach of fiduciary duty. He's also claiming that with the deal that the Tuies had negotiated for the movie with 20th Century Fox, that he was left with no payment at all for the use of his name, likeness, and life story, and that the family actually benefited um, significantly financially. There was a contract price apparently of $225,000. And contractually, they're entitled to two and a half percent of the film's net proceeds with a film that grossed over three hundred million dollars. That is a pretty hefty sum. The Tuies promptly issued a statement in response saying that they've always been upfront with Michael Orr about the conservatorship and that they've actually split any profit from the movie with him equally. They also said that, unfortunately, they've been down this road with him before, that this is not the first time that he's tried to, as they phrased it, shake them down, and that it's only recently he was able to find a lawyer to represent him. They actually made the headlines again at the end of last week when they said that they were willing to enter into a consent order to permanently end the conservatorship, and that left a lot of folks wondering, Rich, whether there was, if this gives more credibility to Ower's allegations, the fact that they were actually willing pretty quickly to end the conservatorship. Now, he's got other claims that he's due a lot of money. The two we said that they've always paid him what he's due. So, Rich, if they can substantiate those claims, I'm not sure how much longer this case is going to go, but it's a really sad turn of events for a story that millions of us thought was just an amazing story. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think, I think the reporting on it and his allegations are obviously a little one-sided. We haven't heard too much from the family. You know, I guess what's not being said is that he went on to a fairly successful career in the NFL, you know, made some money. Uh, Presumably, I don't know the facts of this, but presumably he's made a lot of uh, other money off appearances, um, dealing with his role in the movie that he would otherwise not be able to play off of, right? I mean, your average offensive lineman in the NFL isn't making appearances from a, a hit Hollywood movie that generated a, a, a Best Actress Oscar for Sandra Bullock. So, you know, I think he's probably done pretty well off this whole thing. You know, whether or not he knew what he was getting into and, and the details of this relationship, who knows? That's what Discovery is for. Um You know, uh, if he wasn't adequately represented and he was taken advantage of as a young person, then, yeah, there should be some damages for that. He was also upset that he was portrayed in the movie as less than intelligent, as as, as slow. And that's not you know accurate. So um, we'll see. You know, I uh, I never saw the film, actually. Brian, are you a fan uh, of The Blind Side? I'm not. uh, it's, It's one sports movie that slipped me. Yeah, I thought it was a good movie. Um, I, and I agree with you, Rich. I, I feel like he did benefit from this relationship, so you can only feel so bad for him. What I really don't understand, though, is how he got to this place, because as a minor, he's not capable of contracting. And for a conservatorship to occur, I would think there would have to be a hearing with a guardian ad litem appointed and that there would be some type of of adult looking after his interests through a, a court-sanctioned uh, set up. So I, I would love to just see how this whole thing is proven and the evidence as it unfolds to really understand 
how this this master fraud could have occurred. I mean, I'm not saying it didn't occur, but I think we need to look at the the creation of that conservatorship and see what steps were taken along the way to know how or why this was unfair to him. Tina, the Lewis Breezewa defector firm is losing another chunk of attorneys. So, yeah, Joe, earlier this summer, we covered here on Legal Faceoff the plight of the law firm Barbara Raymond, which in May spun off of the law firm Lewis Brisboy. Now, our listeners will remember that shortly after that spinoff, Lewis Brisboy had released a bunch of racist and sexist emails that involved the named partners, John Barber and Jeff Raynan, and they were in the middle of all of this controversy. Shortly after that, dozens of lawyers left the newly formed firm and went to other firms. So while the named partners, Barber and Raynan, ended up leaving quickly, and the startup firm appointed new leadership and renamed himself Doherty Lorden, these moves unfortunately proved to be too little too late, as at least another 25 lawyers left recently to join the firm O'Hagan Meyer. That's not all that surprising when one of the newly named partners whose name was on the door, Joseph Lorden, had already left the firm to go to O'Hagan Meyer. In announcing the firm's dissolution, the firm noted that they had been actively trying to find homes for the remaining lawyers that that goal had been accomplished, and for that reason, the firm was closing its doors. So, Rich, this firm failed in an extraordinarily quick and very public fashion. We've covered some of these firm dissolutions over the years, but none of them quite looked like this, where, you know, as Louis Brisboy came out swinging the minute that these guys left, shared all of these emails that showed some pretty poor judgment, to say the least. And unfortunately for Louis Brisboy, they've had their own issues since all of this happened with the firm's co-founder, Bob Lewis, stepping down as chair shortly after all of this went down and the firm's management committee deciding that they were going to appoint one of the New York partners as the new leader of the firm. In addition, there have been some um, some clients of Louis Brisboy, including L.A. County, that said they're no longer going to be working with Lewis Brisboy as a result, Rich. Yeah, I mean, it's uh you know, it's a remarkable descent quickly of a, you know, startup law firm. But it's also, as you point out, uh, perhaps as damaging to this established firm, uh, Lewis Brisboy, uh, because not only were these communications made, you know, largely on, on their watch, but they decided to release them. Right. And you got to just think through if I'm a client, but I want to be associated with a firm that, you know, affirmatively releases them kind of as a strategic move against this, you know, former firm. Um, I'm not making any, you know, decision one way or the other how that how that looks, but I can certainly understand some reluctance by clients to be associated. So, you know, listen, Joe, Essis, you got to be careful. You got to be careful what you write and how you write it. And, you know, you got to you got to be above board. We just got done discussing some ethics involving AI with, uh, you know, the state authority on that. And this goes right to the heart of, of ethics and you know, how you're communicating and you got to you got to be careful, obviously. Yeah. I mean, it's not really breaking news that offensive emails aren't the greatest marketing strategy. So um, it's it's not entirely surprising that they release these emails. It is it is sort of surprising that um, they did it in the fashion that they did. Like there's other ways. How do you overcome this, though, Tina? I mean, you, you hire a lot of people. I do also. You know, you get a resume from one of these 
former uh, law firm leaders or anyone at the firm. And uh, how, how, how do they overcome this sordid tale if they're looking for further employment? Well, Rich, I think given how public this was, I think that there are any number of these lawyers whose names ended up in the press. And I think the best way through it is to say that it was and, and to say essentially mea culpa and the lessons are learned and that it was an, a regrettable lapse in judgment and that they there are lessons to be learned to carry forward. I mean, I think I, I don't think there's any hiding of it, just given how public it was. And I think admitting to it and moving forward is probably the best thing to be done at this point. Rich, last week, a California court revived a couple of Michael Jackson sexual abuse cases. Now, Wade Robson and James Safechuck, Joe, are two um, individuals who filed a lawsuit against the corporation that uh, survived Michael Jackson. And they are uh, they've alleged repeatedly that they were victims of sexual abuse by Michael Jackson. Their cases were dismissed uh, on a couple of prior occasions. And uh, this is a fairly interesting legal ruling, putting aside the you know uh, idea that it's against Michael Jackson. Um, legally, Tina, it's interesting in that the court said that uh, this corporation can be held accountable. Basically, you know, the, the the earlier court said that a corporation is different than, let's say, the Boy Scouts or a church. Uh, in their responsibility and their duty to protect, you know, victims. Uh, in this case, the court said that a corporate, I'm going to just read it because again, it's very interesting legally. A corporation that facilitates the sexual abuse of children by one of its employees is not excused from an affirmative duty to protect those children merely because it is solely owned by the perpetrator of the abuse. So, you know, um, a lot of people I think would disagree that a corporation has a duty to protect uh, victims of abuse, right? A corporation in many ways has the duty to increase value to its shareholders. But in this case, again, it's notable that this is in California, right? Which is known as a very liberal interpretation of a lot of these laws. But, you know, going forward, a corporation seems to have a higher duty in California protecting victims of abuse um, as a result of this case. Yeah, Norwich, I agree with you. I think part of the reason why this came out the way it did is because we're talking about California here. But I think they also see the corporation really as being Michael Jackson, Michael Jackson being the corporation. It's not like we're talking about a corporation that consists of thousands of employees. And I think their rationale was um, that, you know, to the extent it is found that Michael Jackson was guilty and was a perpetrator in all of this, that you can't use the corporate construct as a means to shield a person who is a perpetrator from liability. So, I mean, we learned this in business associations and law school, right? So I think that that's the only way that this really makes sense is if they take that sort of construct that the corporation really is not a corporation, as we usually talk about it, it really is Michael Jackson hiding behind a corporation construct. And it would, uh, you know, I guess it imposes the duty, Brian, on, you know, especially at a corporation, to Tina's point, that is basically a mirror image, the man in the mirror, in many ways, uh, of their proprietor, in this case, Michael Jackson. It would seem to impose a somewhat difficult duty on a low-level employee to intervene when someone like Michael Jackson is allegedly sexually abusing people. So, I mean, I understand the logic behind it, but it also seems to be a little bit hard to put in place practically. It 
it seems to me like a results oriented decision as opposed to a legally based one, because as we were just discussing, the purpose of a, a, a primary benefit of a corporation is to have that independence from the people who run it. If it was in fact the case that this, um, there was an alter ego, there's no, no separation of corporate entity from the individual Michael Jackson, then all they need to do is pierce the corporate veil and those assets become Michael Jackson's again. And, and that money would go to it. But they're saying that the court, the corporation itself owed a specific legal duty. And for that to happen, I guess I would need to understand and know what affirmative conduct the corporation took to facilitate this, um, to create liability separate from Michael Jackson's. And, you know, it's one of the things that's going to be interesting to see what evidence is there to do it. But otherwise, they could have just pierced the corporate veil and taken those assets as if they were Michael Jackson's, if it was just one and the same. Joe Essence, you know, here in Chicago, uh, MJ, the musical, is now playing. It started a week ago, coming off a very successful run on on Broadway. How did Michael Jackson escape cancellation? I'm wondering, you know, people have been canceled for all sorts of reasons. You might think they're big or small, but Michael Jackson had some pretty serious allegations by multiple alleged victims of sexual abuse. And yet we're still celebrating his music with these lavish Broadway productions, among other things. How how has Jacko escaped cancellation is my question. Yeah, I I have no idea. That's a great question. There's so many different allegations against the against him like, from so many different people. So many incidents that you can remember, like him holding the baby outside of that window, and just I don't know. I, probably because cancellation uh, took place way after his time. Like there's there wasn't a culture of cancellation when MJ was at his at his peak. But yeah, I mean that's a great question. No, so Brad, have you seen the uh, MJ musical yet? Do you plan to? No, I've been hearing a lot of good things about it, though. I, I would enjoy seeing it. I, I'm a fan of his music. Uh, uh, you're the fan, Joe. Joe's leading yeah, the pro Michael Jackson, no cancellation movement. I get it. No, no, <laughs> honestly, literally said I, I'm a fan of his music. That was it. Uh, <laughs> anyway, let's fly on to the next topic like Frontier Airlines trying to help out their customers, but apparently their all-you-can-fly pass is actually a little bit faulty, Rich. Uh, South Carolina women has filed on Thursday a uh, lawsuit saying that this all-you-can-fly pass offered by Frontier is just a bait-and-switch. We've covered lots of allegations against you know, low-fare um, airlines in the past. This one was apparently created for a monthly Cost $149 and yearly pass, summer pass. But basically, you can fly for free if you pay this one fee. And this woman is alleging that, uh, you know, because Frontier is still charging for all the add-ons, it's really not a free thing because, you know, you still got to pay for carry-on bags. You got to pay for, um, you know, snacks. You got to pay for extra legroom and all that stuff. So the allegation is that it's really not free when you factor in all these other um, all these other charges. I mean, you know, Tina, I guess my response would be, yeah, we get it, but you're flying frontier. Like, what do you expect? Right. I mean, um, no one would, no one would expect that you would get everything that you're asking for, for this, you know, lump sum. And you would also get, you know, upgraded leg room and all that stuff, free luggage and all that. It doesn't make any sense to me. I agree. Rich, there was one thing that kind of stuck out to me as I was reading through 
um, information about the lawsuit. And that was the claim that the dimensions for a carry on that was permitted, that when you actually get to the gate, that you have to stick your bag into this receptacle. And if it doesn't fit, then you have to automatically gate check it. And it's like a ridiculous amount, like a hundred dollars. And so, you know, if it's true that there's a big delta between what they say online is permitted and then what they actually allow you to bring on board, then I'd say "Mm, maybe there's something there. But I agree with you as a general matter, all of these airlines have different fees, different charges. And unless there's some big delta between what Frontier's doing and all the rest of them are doing, I'm not so sure there's anything here. Brian, the one part of the allegation that I will sign on sign on to and probably find in her favor if I'm on a jury is that her hours and hours on hold with customer service, only to be told that this pass was unusable. That, that to me is enough mental stress to warrant millions of dollars in an award. Yeah, I, I think she needs to be a medallion passenger. Um, it, it seems to me that this is a pretty straightforward legal case. Uh, it's just a breach contract. Yeah, you know, she had an obligation to pay a certain amount. Presumably, she did that. If she satisfied her end of the bargain, what did Frontier Airlines say as part of their contract they would they would provide? And if they did, then Frontier's in the right. If they didn't, then she's in the right. But you know, I would I hate to rely on on South Park for a legal argument. But I remember Cartman once said, you know, who reads the terms and conditions? <laughs> That's really what it's going to come down to. And what were the terms and conditions? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that was the human centipede episode. <laughs> Love that reference. Uh, Tina, we wrap up with Team Brittany, who's apparently dropping her husband to 14 months. Yeah, Joe. So news broke last week. Just when we thought Brittany was going to ride off into the sunset with her husband, we found out that her husband of 14 months, Sam Ashgari, is out. He was actually the first to break the news the last Thursday afternoon when he hit Instagram and said, after six years of love and commitment, their journey has ended and that they will always love and respect each other, yada, yada, yada. So there's been a lot of speculation here as to what, if anything, Ashgari has to gain by um, by through this whole process known as divorce. Um, Clearly, she's got an airtight prenup. The divorce filing cites irreconcilable differences. He's the one who filed. And he actually said in the filing that he has yet to determine the full nature and extent of the assets and obligations of each party, which just sort of smells as if he's expecting that notwithstanding what has been called an airtight prenup, that he's somehow going to be entitled to something. Because given how short their marriage is and with an airtight prenup, ordinarily, other than gifts, he wouldn't be entitled to much of anything. We've talked a lot about celebrity divorces here on Legal Faceoff, and we know that often people ask for more than they're entitled to in these situations. There's been some speculation that given everything Brittany's been through, especially with her folks and her father in particular and the conservatorship last year, that she may actually bite here on a financial settlement with her soon-to-be ex, particularly if she wants to keep him quiet. He probably knows a lot. There are rumors swirling that he's going to challenge the prenup and 
that he's allegedly been trying to threaten to exploit her with videos and other damaging things. His camp is denying those rumors, Rich. Um, the prenup has a confidentiality clause, but we know that oftentimes people will pay up just to keep people quiet. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's an interesting legal question as to whether she had the legal authority to execute any of these documents if she was in the midst of the conservatorship. So who knows? Um, only in California, I think, would you have deal with those issues? But it's interesting. But yeah, I mean, you know, uh, Free Britney, I guess, continues the movement to free her from uh, yet another tough relationship, Joe. Um, yeah, they just they just got to leave Britney alone. That's that's all it comes down to. Um, okay. Yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see if Asgari tries to challenge the prenup. I, I know his team said that they weren't going to, but it, like Christina was saying, it's going to be a tough argument uh, that their marriage was so short for him to claim anything in this situation. But we'll see, I guess. Brian, either way, we know that there'll be a, uh, a TikTok of Britney dancing and some degree of small clothes coming up as a result of this, which I know you like the news. You know, there's there's always a way to capitalize off of it, I assume. Um, but I, I agree with everyone here. I mean, it's such a short marriage and, you know, what's at stake. I mean, it seems like they should just do some kind of like rice aroni the San Francisco treat, lovely parting gift rule for these types of marriages. But honestly, I don't know why it's really even news. I mean, I can, you any of us could go down to the local domestic relations court and see the exact same story of short-lived marriages. And just because it's Britney Spears. It makes the, the headlines. Um, I just let these people go in private and deal with their own issues and for their sake and ours. All right, Joe Brand, I was going to go and ask everyone as our ending segment, our roundtable, your favorite Britney song, but we've done that. I feel like let's go back to the, uh, the blind side story and Sandra Bullock won a best Oscar or best actress Oscar for that. Let's go around the room, starting with you, Joe Brand, of course. And name your favorite Sandra Bullock movie of all time. Uh, Miss Congeniality. It's a good one. Starring William Shatner. Joe S.'s favorite Sandra Bullock movie. Yeah, I mean, The Blind Side was mine, but I got to be team Michael Orr here. Michael Orr's my guy. So I think I got to go with Miss Congeniality as well. Oh, you're, you're violating already the rule of no repeats, but. <laughs> all right, Blind Side, but. <laughs> We're going on a limb on that one. Tina, favorite Sandra Bullock movie? I really liked While You Were Sleeping. I thought that was a really cute movie. Earlier ones, yeah. Good one. One of the best comedies about a coma of all time. (laughs) Sandra Bullock movie. Give give, Give us a deep cut. I know you know every Bullock movie. Wasn't she in Speed? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um... Great movie. One of the, I guess, Keanu's first real action movie, right? Um, my favorite is uh, an obscure movie with featuring one of the weirdest accents of all time, The Vanishing. Jeff Bridges, uh, um, she plays uh, Kiefer's uh, girlfriend, gets kidnapped and descends into a, uh, a relationship uh, of cat and mouse with uh, a very creepy Jeff Bridges. Um, so, Joe, check out The Vanishing if you haven't seen that yet. I was going to say, I think the two people who understand the reference are, are very thrilled that you went with that. <laughs> that that's going to 
do it for our legal grab bag here on this Legal Face-Off podcast. Big thanks to our two guests, Joe Esses and Brian Kapritz, along with our guests earlier on the show, Mark C. Palmer, uh, David Sussler, Professor, Professor Kevin McMoneagle, Jacob Glick, and Dr. Pete Simeo, along with the big thank you to our producers, Lisa Stiegel and Ben Anderson. Please don't forget to like, subscribe, and share the Legal Face-Off podcast. Also, please do us a favor and give us five stars. Martina Martini and Rich Lenkoff, I'm Joe Brand. We'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face-Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget.